Last week we uh, spoke on the responsibilities of a man, and today I want to talk about what a uh, woman should be. And I know that to many of you uh, this might sound somewhat ironic, given the fact that I'm obviously not qualified because I'm not a woman. But actually that's a fallacy, not the fact that I'm a man. That's not the fallacy part. Wouldn't you be surprised? But the idea that only a woman can know what a woman is supposed to be is a fallacy because the reality is that the majority of men in this world would not be able to articulate what a man should be. And just because you're a woman doesn't necessarily mean that you understand what God's Word says about what a woman should be. And so the only thing that really qualifies me to be able to bring this message to you is the Word of God. And so uh, that's what we're going to look at today when we talk about the uh, relationships of a woman. Now, as we talked about four weeks ago, there are a growing number of people in our society who want to separate one's sex from one's gender. They define sex, again, as the physical and sexual characteristics that a person is born with, and they define gender, on the other hand, as the masculine or feminine or otherwise role that a person plays in life. And according to that viewpoint, the two may have nothing to do with one another, nothing in common. And the reasoning behind that type of thinking, well, it's the false belief that we have the authority to choose whether we are male or female or whatever. We do not. And in that sermon uh, that, I called German, uh, that I called Gender Confusion and, and Clarity, I detailed some of the fallacies and the weaknesses of that type of view. And I also pointed out the obvious reality that we are designed by God to be one or the other, either male or female. Being male or female goes beyond the biological characteristics. There are real spiritual, internal, hidden dimensions or distinctions between men and women. And this is a truth that is not only biblical, but also obvious to any person who does not close his mind or her mind to the reality of those distinctions. But that's exactly what a lot of people do these days. They close their minds to reality. We have males who think they're females, we have females who think they're males, and we have people of either sex who are confused about their own sexual identity. And I'm not making fun of uh, people that are confused or even convinced that they are something other than what they are. I'm simply saying that the truth is not difficult to discern. It's quite obvious. And what is sad about the whole situation is that so many people believe that which is false. But how does this, how does this ever happen? That so many people in a society would come to believe something that is, so, that, that is the opposite of what is so blatantly and obviously true. Well, it's actually pretty easy to understand how this type of belief could take, take hold in people's minds. And uh, let me explain. I want you to think about the, the beliefs and the values of your life to be in the form of a building. Okay, if you can imagine that, in the form of a building. And all of your life, you've been building this building. 
And you're, you're adding layers upon layers, brick upon brick, stone upon stone to this building. And every layer and every brick is a belief or a value that you have in, in your life, in your mind. And this building is that which makes you really you, at least in your own mind. And again, the bricks, the stones of this building are the things that you value. It is, those are the things that you like, the things that you choose to believe. And at the bottom of this building, like any building, you have a foundation. And there are foundational stones. Sometimes in the old days we'd call them cornerstones. That your entire life is built upon. And cornerstones are those absolutely essential beliefs that establish your self-identity. Now, if one of those cornerstones upon which you've built your life and you've built every successive belief and value, if one of those cornerstones is false, and yet you don't know it, you're going to continue to build your life upon other false beliefs related to that false cornerstone. And before you know it, a major portion of your life is a lie, and you're not even aware. This is the process by which so many people have deceived themselves into being confused about their sexual identity. Way back in 1991, an author by the name of Judith Butler argued in her book called Gender Trouble that there is nothing intrinsic to masculinity or femininity. In other words, when you get beyond the sexual characteristics and the sexual distinctions, males and females, with that exception to biology, they are exactly the same. This idea, it is a false cornerstone of the gender confusion in our world today. But this idea that there is no difference between masculinity and femininity, it suffers from a fatal self-inflicted wound. For many, in fact, but I'll just name one. And that is the wound of practicality. What do I mean? Here's one way that you know that an idea is false if nobody actually lives according to it. You see, the people that claim to believe that there's no internal difference between men and women, they don't actually live according to that belief. What do I mean? Well, just listen to the statements that they make. They use the same masculine and feminine statements that we all use. For example, they will say, like any of us might say, something like, there's nothing like a mother's love. Now that statement cannot be sincerely made unless you believe it to be true. And that statement cannot be sincerely made unless you believe a mother's love is unique and that a mother's love is explicitly feminine. And yet these people that say that there's no distinction between masculinity and femininity, they'll admit freely and they'll, by their own experience in their lives, they know intuitively 
that a mother's love is unique. I'll give you another example. A few years ago, the ride-sharing company Uber faced allegations of sexual harassment throughout their entire system of management. And so the leaders of that company did some introspection, and they hired some experts who came in, and they had finally admitted that they had too much of a macho, competitive work culture. And these experts proposed the following solution. Get more women into leadership. And I would just tell you from the outset, that's probably a very good first step. You know, sexual harassment is a serious issue and should not be taken lightly. You know, having both sexes represented in leadership can provide a wider perspective in decision-making. But here's what I find interesting. The business experts that Uber consulted said Uber needed more, quote, emotional intelligence and more humanity in the company. Where do emotional intelligence and humanity come from? Women, they said. Now, even if you disagree with the premise and the assumption that only women possess emotional intelligence and only women possess humanity, it strikes me that these very same progressive gender means what you want people acknowledge that there's an internal difference between men and women. There's an internal difference between masculinity and femininity. And a good dose of femininity could solve the problems at Uber. Well, you can't have it both ways. You can't say it doesn't exist and at the same time say Uber needs a good dose of femininity. It doesn't go that way. If you're going to say that there's no difference between men and women, then Uber doesn't need more women in the leadership. They have the full breadth of humanity right there just by having a bunch of guys in the room. But we know that's not so. We know there does, and that there is a distinction. There does exist a distinction between masculinity and femininity. And not only do we know that that internal difference between men and women exists, but everyone knows it. Everyone except those that have closed their mind to the idea and try to convince themselves that something that is blatantly obvious doesn't even exist. And more important than everyone knowing it, God knows it. How does God know that there's a difference between men and women? Because God created the difference between men and women. He made the difference. And so last week, we examined some distinctive ways that God made men. And we discovered very quickly that men are oriented toward responsibility. And some of you ladies might argue the point and say, my husband is the most irresponsible person I know. But I didn't say that your husband was doing a good job at being a man, only that men are oriented that way, okay? They're wired that way. A real man, a true man, the way God designed, is selfless. He is initiative-taking. He, uh, he manages 
the realm that God has given him. He provides for others. He protects others. He lovingly and sacrificially leads in the way that God's Word prescribes. That's a description of what a real man is supposed to be. At its essence, manhood is about character. Not natural abilities, not skills developed over time. It's about character, who you are here. Now, as wonderful and as incredible as men are, and I say that without hesitation, I say that without joking, because God made males to be incredible and wonderful people. And as wonderful and as incredible as males are, they are desperately lacking in and of themselves. We see a hint of this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. If you have your Bible, we'll be in Genesis 1 through 3 again. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 And here's what we read. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so, again, God made humanity in his image. The man is not alone in being made in the image of God. The woman is as well. The woman likewise is made in God's image. Men and women, according to this verse, if we understand it properly, men and women are of equal worth. They are of equal value, equal dignity, equal importance to God. Every human life, male and female, is sacred. And by the way, that means you. You are sacred. Your life is sacred. You are not unimportant. You are not worthless. You are not meaningless. You are not a loser. According to God, you are so important. You are worthwhile. Your life is meaningful. You are a winner. God says so. And because God says so, it's true. And God made you so. You might feel otherwise when you stumble and you fall and you don't reach a goal. Something else happens. You're not able to do something somebody else is able to do. But listen to me. God made you special. You are not a loser. You're very much a winner. And men are not of greater worth than women, regardless of what some chauvinists say. And women are not of greater worth than men, regardless of what some feminists might say. We are equally loved in the heart of God. At the same time, men and women are made in ways that serve as perfect complements of each other. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 2, in this account, in Genesis 2, we have a more specific 
accounting of the, of the creation of humanity. And we see in Genesis 2 that the man was made first, but he was very alone. He was very incomplete. Genesis 2.18 reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. What an incredible statement. Let me tell you why. Because if you go back to Genesis 1 and you read that, repeatedly God calls his creation good. Over and over again, God calls it good. Genesis 1.4, the light was good. Genesis 1.10, the dry land and the seas were good. Genesis 1.12, the plants were good. Genesis 1.18, the sun and the moon were good. Genesis 1.21, the fish and the birds were good. Genesis 1.25, the land creatures were good. And by the time in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God had made everything. When he made humans and he finished his creative activity, God said it is very good. Over and over again, everything is good. But now, in this more precise retelling of the story in Genesis 2, when the man is alone, God declares it is not good. It is not good. Something was not good in God's perfect creation. Sin had not even entered the world, and something was not good. It says so by God. Something was not good. Here's what was not good. Humanity was incomplete. The man was alone. The man needed a woman. But why? I mean, why, why did the man need a woman? Well, for a number of reasons, as we'll discover in this passage, but the most obvious is that the man by himself cannot be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1.28. If you go back to Genesis 1, we read this instruction, God blessed them and, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so when Adam was alone, we understand that he could not be fruitful and multiply. And when he was alone, even before Eve came upon the scene, he was very connected to the ground. His very name, Adam, is taken from the Hebrew word ground, Adamah. He was connected to the ground. He was made from the dust of the ground. He named the animals of that were also made from the ground. He was very connected to the ground. He was supposed to rule over all of the creatures that were made from the dust of the ground. And so he was very connected to the ground, and he began ruling over the creation before Eve ever came onto the scene. He did this by naming all of the animals. Eve, however, she had a very different orientation. You see, the woman is the one who bears children. Now, she obviously cannot be fruitful and multiply by herself any more than the man can. But she is connected to their fruit, children, in a way that's much more intimate than the man is. You see, after a, a child is conceived... The man has no idea. No idea. I mean, he goes about his business. But before long, the woman knows. And at a time of her choosing, the woman tells the man. And it looks something like this. Now, that's actually the cover of a book 
that Amy got me to tell me of her condition with our first child. And I opened up this book and saw this cover. And uh, I was amazed, not only did it have my name on it, uh, and that's actually the name of the book, but I looked at that picture of the couple and it had both of our likenesses on it too. She's very overjoyed, and I am very terrorized. That look of shock on a man's face when he is told by his wife that she is with child, it should not be taken as a look of disappointment or hesitation. That is simply the freight train of responsibility hitting him head on. You see, if a woman tells her best girlfriend that she is pregnant, the immediate response is, I'm so happy for you. How do you feel? When are you due? All of the focus is on her. All of the focus is on the mother. It's all about the friend's relationship to her because women are especially geared, here it is, toward relationships. But when a woman tells her husband that she is pregnant, the first thing he thinks of is not her. Sorry, ladies. The first thing he thinks, his instinctive thought is this. I'm not ready. This is serious. I need to get ready. I need to grow up. I have responsibilities now. I'm scared. That's the look on that guy's face. And on every, it's, that's the look in every man's heart when he hears those words. You see, for the man, it's all about responsibility. That's the way men are wired. And then throughout the pregnancy, the woman is intimately connected to that baby. Daily, she is related to that baby in a way that the husband is not. She is literally the host that sustains the life of that baby. And that baby affects her every day. It affects her moods. It affects her sleep or lack thereof. It even affects her taste buds. And soon she can feel that baby move. But the husband, completely disconnected from that same level of intimacy with that same baby. He doesn't have that level of intimacy that his wife has. But finally, when the baby's big enough, he can see his wife's belly move when the baby kicks. And he points it out to his wife as if she didn't know. <laughs> hey, did you see that? Your belly moved. That's amazing. And she's thinking, yes, dear, I'm so glad. You got to experience that. I'm here for your entertainment. <laughs> but that's all the husband gets from the baby. That's it. Until the baby's born. And even after the baby is born, it is the mother who gives that child the food needed to survive and to grow. The life-giving milk the baby needs is another point of intimacy 
in the relationship between the mother and the next generation of the human race. The man's role? Much more distant. Provide. Protect. Be responsible. You see, both the man and the woman exercise dominion over the world. Yet from the very beginning, we see this accomplished in very different ways. In Genesis 2.18, we read, Again, then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Let's talk about this. A helper suitable for him, because this has been very misunderstood throughout the years. God calls the woman a helper suitable for the man. The word helper does not mean slave. There's a different word for slave. The word for slave is slave. The word helper is something different. The word helper does not mean slave. It does not mean employee. Eve was not created to make Adam breakfast in bed and fetch him the remote. Helper does not mean that the woman is less intelligent, that she is less human, less important, or that she has no identity apart from the man. She does. In fact, statistics tell us that she will probably outlive the man. And when she outlives the man, she by then, by default, has an identity apart from him. The word helper, it is an exalted title. God himself is often called helper. Same word. Of his people in the Hebrew Scriptures. I'll give you one example. Psalm 54, verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. It sure doesn't mean God is your slave, I'll tell you that. Not at all. It is an exalted title. That gives you an idea of how desperately Adam needed Eve. Without Eve, Adam was incomplete. Without Eve, Adam could not obey God and be fruitful and multiply. And Eve not only would be Adam's helper, but she would be a helper suitable for Adam. That means that her strengths, her orientation, her giftedness would complement Adam in every single way. Where the man is weak, the woman improves him. Where the man is strong, the woman sharpens him and makes him even stronger. The woman brings a unique perspective, unique insight, unique strength, unique wisdom, and unique creativity to help the man in ways that he needs. Can you see that not only is the woman made for relationships by her very nature and the be fruitful and multiply aspect of humanity, but also she is made for relationships in Genesis 2.18, where God said she is a helper for him. She is suitable for him. Those terms imply relationships. The woman is distinctly made and oriented for relationships. Now, last week, we discovered the way that God designed man prior to the fall of humanity into sin, that it was confirmed by the fall itself. That God was, that the man was rather made from the ground. He is oriented to the ground. He had to work the ground. And when man was punished, the punishment was 
that the work of the ground would become more difficult. And it even affected the ground itself. Because of man, the ground became cursed. Well, very similarly, the way the woman is made prior to the fall, it is confirmed by the fall itself. Now, you know what happened in Genesis 3. The serpent approached Eve, got Eve to sin. Eve approached Adam, got Adam to sin. You see, the serpent was trying to reverse God's order. God made Adam first, made him the leader. The woman was to follow her husband. But Eve tried to reverse the order. Excuse me, the serpent tried to reverse the order. And so instead of following the lead of her husband into obedience, she became deceived by Satan, and she became to lead her husband into temptation. But again, in Genesis 3, just because the serpent got something to go his way, God was not going to allow that to reverse his created order. And furthermore, the woman was going to have to suffer her punishment according to the distinctive way that God made her, through relationships. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 It reads, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What was the woman's punishment? Well, number one, keep in mind that she was created in part to help the man be fruitful and multiply. But now that act of fruitful multiplication would become painful, more painful to be exact. And number two, even though God made the woman to be the man's helper, a helper, a helper suitable for the man, which again is a position of elevation, it's a position of dignity, her relationship with the man now would be marked by strife. The woman is designed to be especially strong in the area of relationships Yet because of sin, the two relationships closest to the woman, her husband and her children, would both bring her pain. They would be fraught with difficulty. But of course, that's not the end of Eve's story. Immediately after God doled out all of the punishments, this is what the Bible says in Genesis 3.20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. You see, even in spite of sin, part of Eve's role would still involve bringing about life. And this is a key feature of what it means to be a woman, cultivating life in others. You know, many women bring about physical life in this world by bearing children, but some women cannot and some women do not. Yet every woman can still cultivate life because every woman can cultivate spiritual life in other people, and that's the way God designed you, ladies. All women are designed by God to be gifted relationally 
even if this has a different particular manifestation for different women. Ladies, listen, you can use your relational gifts and your relational strengths to develop and encourage and bless others. You can lead by example in godliness, and others can be inspired by you. As I think about the ladies in our own congregation, some of you are incredibly affirming, which is what people who have self-doubt need. Others of you are amazing listeners, which is what people who have heavy burdens need. Other ladies have wisdom beyond their years, which is what people who are confused need. You see, you have relational gifts and ladies that you might not have even tapped into fully yet. Let me encourage you to explore your heart. Explore your passions of how God made you. Do some introspection and ask God to reveal to you how you can give life, spiritual life, to other people in your world. Let me give you a description of what I would call real womanhood. God designed each woman to relate graciously to others by cultivating life, by helping others flourish, and by living in the ways that God's Word prescribes. Let's briefly explore this. First, a woman living as God designed her has a disposition of grace. Her life is an overflowing fountain of grace to others. Her spirit beautifies the world wherever she goes. You know, there are some women, when they enter the room, people cringe. but not the woman that's living as God designed her. When the woman living as God designed her enters the room, people are glad. It's like the whole room becomes brighter because of her presence there. A woman living as God designed her has a disposition to cultivate life. Again, this can happen in many ways. One woman might uh, cherish bringing women, uh, bring children into the world so that she can raise them. But another woman without children may cherish selflessly cultivating life spiritually in others. She is fruitful and she fills her world with God's life. A woman living as God designed her has the disposition as a helper. As we already discussed, this is not a slave. It's not somehow someone is lesser than other people. But rather, she's a blessing to other people. In every way, in her actions, in her words, even in her spirit. She strengthens and she comforts and she ministers and she serves and she uplifts and she encourages and she renews. She nurtures, she revives. This is a part of what makes her unique. Being who God created her to be, she displays the character of Christ. And a woman living as God designed her lives according to God's word. She is filled with God's Spirit, and she walks in step with the Spirit of God. She submits to the Lord. If she's married, she follows the humble, godly leadership of her husband. And if she is single, she exemplifies godliness and Christian celibacy. Ladies, 
whether you are single or married, whether you are a mother, a grandmother, an aunt, or a friend, whether your husband is living as God designed him or not, you are God's workmanship. Your life and your story is needed to be a blessing to others. Many women, unfortunately, feel like they cannot make a difference in anyone's life because they don't have their whole act together. They don't have everything all straightened out in their own life. They feel like a mess, and so they can't be a blessing to others. But listen, your imperfections can speak to imperfect people. The reality is that you probably make a much bigger deal about your imperfections than anyone else does. The reality is nobody cares. You're not perfect? Good. Neither are they. They really don't care about your imperfections. But you look at your life, and you see one little spiritual wrinkle in the mirror, and oh, it's all over. I can't serve God anymore. Come on. The reality is that spiritual wrinkle, it's wisdom that God has given you. You can use that wisdom to speak to others who may have a spiritual wrinkle of their own. Every woman here, every single woman here, you are an inspiration. You are a blessing. And if you don't feel like you are, you can be. You really can be. Listen, you must believe what God says you are before you can become what God says you are. Ladies, you must believe that God's grace is at work in you. You must believe that God made you a cultivator of life. You must believe that you are a helper who blesses others. You must believe that God's way is the right way to live. And if you believe, it can and will become a reality in your life. I want you, ladies, to envision your life again as a building. Brick upon brick, stone upon stone. But the cornerstone is not some false belief that there's no difference between masculinity and femininity. The cornerstone is not a false belief that, oh, you're just little old you and little old you doesn't matter to anybody. The cornerstone is Christ. He is the cornerstone of your life. And what Christ says about you and His Word settles it. You are everything that we've discussed in this message Today, Jesus Christ is the one that you base your life on. And I'll say one final thing and then we'll close. You should not be harmed by the things in your past. The things in your past are exactly there, they are in your past, they are not in the present. Whether someone has harmed you in the past, whether you made bad decisions in the past, whether things have not gone your way in the past, 
That has no bearing on whether you live according to God's way today. You have the ability. You have the reality of being an incredible blessing to other people. You have to believe it. Believe it to be true. And if you have trouble getting over your past, I want you to think about those women at the end of John chapter 7 and the beginning of John chapter 8 who had a very storied past, and yet they were some of Jesus' best and most faithful supporters. Jesus did not bring up their past, and he won't bring up yours. Live for him today. He is your cornerstone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have brought so many beautiful and incredible women into this fellowship. Father, they are beautiful in spirit. They are incredible in spirit, Father. You have made them part of your family. And Lord, you say to each and every one of them that you love them, you created them just the way they are. And Father, you have given each one of them a unique way to serve you and to live their lives. Father, I thank you for the ministry that they have, not only in this church, but even more importantly in their own families, in their own world. Many of them go to work each and every day, and they serve you in a special way there. Father, I thank you for the way that you have made the women in this church and, Father, in this world. I pray, Lord, that we might see ourselves for who we truly are. Father, I pray for the men that are husbands, that are sons, that are friends, that we would be the men that you've called us to be, that we would provide an environment for our wives and our daughters and our friends where they could thrive and become the ladies that you have called them to be. So, Father, where we men have failed, I pray that you would forgive us, and I pray that these wonderful ladies would forgive us. And, Father, where, where we can succeed, I pray that you show us that way. Help us to live according to your word, and Father, we'll give you praise and glory for all that you do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.